Chapter 36 In the fourteenth year of King Hezekiah's reign, that was around 701 B.C. Remember in uh, chapter 6 where Isaiah has his inaugural vision as a prophet, it's 742 B.C. So 41 years have elapsed since that time. That was in the last year of King Uzziah's reign. And then there was Jotham, Ahaz, and now Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, in the 14th year of his reign. 14 is a very symbolic number because it's the numerical value of the name David. And Hezekiah is a Davidic son, or Davidic king, Davidic heir on the throne of King David in Judea. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah's reign, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, marched against all the fortified cities of Judea and seized them. And that was after they had conquered all the nations virtually in between Assyria and Judea, including some years earlier the northern kingdom of the ten tribes and under Sargon had taken them captive to Assyria. And now they're coming down again in another wave of uh, invasion and they actually at this time go down to Egypt as well. So Nahrub king of Assyria marched against all the fortified cities of Judea and seized them. He took all of them except Jerusalem where he now comes to. Now all of this is a prophecy of Isaiah's that was given many years earlier. In um, chapter 8, for example, Isaiah prophesies in verses 6 and 7 and 8, because these people have rejected the waters of Shiloah, which flow gently, which represented the Davidic dynasty or the throne of King David. At that time, Ahaz ruled over that throne. And rejoice in Redson and the son of Ramalia. The people generally wanted to join an alliance with the northern kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Damascus against the Assyrian assault, against one of the Assyrian invasions coming down. And the Lord said, no, just depend on my protection. And so, therefore, because the people depend on the arm of flesh on themselves and their alliance, their human alliance, Isaiah pronounced this prophecy that the king of Assyria in verse 7 says, Therefore will my Lord cause to come up over them the great and mighty waters of the river, the king of Assyria in all his glory. He will rise up over all his channels, overflow all his banks like a river in flood. He will sweep into Judea like a flood. At that time, he didn't sweep into Judea. He swept only down to Samaria, as far as Samaria. He will sweep into Judea like a flood, and passing through, reach the very neck, which leaves the head or the capital city, Jerusalem. His outspread wings will span the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. So many decades later, this is now being fulfilled in chapter 36. In the book of Isaiah, those earlier chapters 6 through 8 parallel chapters 36 through 40 in Isaiah's seven-part structure, the Bifid structure, so that the context of these chapters, 36 through 40, that we're reading now, these chapters ought to be read in the context of those other chapters, 6 through 8. In chapters 6 through 8, we have a rebellious son, a rebellious vassal, or a rebellious descendant of David, King Ahaz, who doesn't want to trust in the Lord's protection, and he wants to take his own measures, He actually made himself subservient to the king of Assyria as a way of protecting himself and his people instead of making himself subservient to the Lord. 
There you have a rebellious vassal and also a rebellious people, the people of King Ahaz. They want the alliance with Israel and Damascus against Assyria. They depended on the arm of flesh instead of on the Lord their God too. There you have rebellion of both king and people in chapter 6 through 8. And here in chapters 36 through 40, you have the compliance or the obedience or the submission of God's people and their king to the Lord. So here we have covenant keeping. In these chapters we have covenant keeping. You'll see what the outcome is going to be. A radically different outcome from the outcome in chapters 6 through 8 where the Assyrians actually came in and took captive the ten tribes as a result of the Lord's people's unfaithfulness. So we have a juxtaposition. All of those uh, seven parts of the book of Isaiah juxtaposed with each other. These two blocks of chapters are juxtaposed and contrasted. King Ahaz becomes a model for rebellion, and his people a model for disloyalty to the Lord. And King Hezekiah, in this case, becomes a model for loyalty to the Lord, and his people's loyalty to their king and to their God. The exact opposite of what happens with Ahaz. So keep all of that in mind as we read these chapters. It was not because of the people's wickedness in Hezekiah's day that the Assyrians are coming and conquering Judea, in this case. It was because of the people's wickedness in a former generation, when Isaiah at that time, some 40 years earlier, pronounced that prophecy that the Assyrians would come in and go right up to the neck, leaving the head, like a flood. And that's what they've done here. That's what they're doing here. So sometimes a future generation can inherit a previous generation's, or the effects of a previous generation's transgressions. Verse 2, And the king of Assyria sent Rabshakeh, his commander, his chief commander, with a large army from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. And he took up a position by the aqueduct of the upper reservoir on the road to the laundry plaza. And that is exactly where Isaiah made the prophecy of the Assyrian invasion some 40 years earlier, at that very spot. That's in chapter 7, verse 3, where it says, Go out and meet Ahaz, you and your son Sha'ar Yeshub, at the end of the aqueduct of the upper reservoir on the road to the laundry plaza. So it kind of heightens the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy years earlier. And Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, overseer of the palace, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joach, the son of Asaph, the record keeper, went out to meet him, or went out to him. And Rabshakeh said to them, now this is where he makes his speech, great speech, an arrogant, conquering type mentality. Rabshakeh said to them, please tell Hezekiah, thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, Great king means emperor king, as against vassal king. The kings of Assyria were emperors. They ruled the Assyrian Empire as King David years earlier had ruled as an emperor over the ancient Near East, and so had Solomon, his son. And Hittite kings had ruled over large tracts of land earlier, so did Babylonian kings. And they had vassal kings underneath them in different parts of their empire. The Assyrians, however, set the precedent for ruling over the entire known world at that time. They were the first world rulers of the known world, ancient known world, because they were the first ones to conquer the ancient world by military force. 
it kind of lends more stature to this idea of a great king or emperor king. On what grounds do you behave with such confidence? Do you suppose that in war, mere words are sufficient tactics or show of strength? In whom have you put your trust that you have rebelled against me? It is clear you depend on the support of Egypt. Now, Egypt was the other great superpower of Isaiah's time. There were basically two world powers, Assyria and Egypt. And in a confrontation between the two, Assyria cleaned out Egypt. Assyria spoiled Egypt. So that really the only power that survived, or was militarily the top dog, was Assyria. And Egypt was a great civilized nation, but it was in decline at that time, which allowed the Assyrians to come in and overwhelm Egypt as well. It is clear you depend on the support of Egypt. And one of the things that happened in Israel a lot was that in times of conquest from the north or military threats from the north, they often would depend on Egypt for help or strength. In this case, Hezekiah did not. It's simply a false accusation. But we read in chapters 30 and 31 that there was quite a movement in Judea for trusting in Pharaoh's armies of chariots and horsemen for protection. As it says, Woe to you, rebellious sons, in chapter 30, verse 1, for drawing up plans but not by me, for making alliances without my approval, only adding sin to sin. They are bent on going down to Egypt, but have not inquired at my mouth on seeking protection in Pharaoh's forces, on taking shelter in Egypt's shadow. The Pharaoh's protection shall turn to your shame and shelter in Egypt's shadow to embarrassment. And there's lots of negotiations going on. But that's not the case here, even though there may have been some of that in the past. The king of Assyria's captain or general nevertheless accuses them of that. We'll see that that's not the case. Verse 6 again. It's clear you depend on the support of Egypt, that splintered reed which enters and pierces the palm of any man who leans on it. So he uses that imagery of the reeds and rushes down in Egypt, the bulrushes for which Egypt was famous, as a type of Egypt itself. A splintered reed, it's no longer a strong reed, it's an old broken down reed, it's generating. And that did reflect Egypt in its decline at that time. And also he's making the point that you're depending on human help which will be no help, just like the Lord said. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who rely on him. Well, yes, sometimes in the past, and sometimes not. Sometimes Egypt did help, marvelously, those who relied on him. But if you tell me we rely on the Lord our God, or really Jehovah our God, that's what the Hebrew says, is he not the one whose shrines and altars Hezekiah abolished, telling Judea and Jerusalem to worship only at this altar? Meaning that this altar refers to the present worship of Jehovah in the temple at Jerusalem, where the Assyrians have now come to and are sieging the city. And it is a fact that Hezekiah cleaned up the worship of his people by abolishing the shrines and altars that were scattered around the land, the high places, as they sometimes have been called, so that worship of the Lord Jehovah was centralized at Jerusalem because of Hezekiah's reformation. King uh, Hosea did the same thing. There were two righteous kings in Israel who did that. They took out the Sodomites out of the land, 
In other words, they did away with gay culture, totally, and uh, clean up their act. And they went through a reformation. And now this Assyrian general is using that against Hezekiah as an argument against him, which is kind of ironic because in the Assyrians' minds, the more idols and the more shrines and altars you have, the better, because then you'll get the favor of the gods and they'll help you. And they didn't understand that centralizing worship in Jerusalem was better because then the worship of the true God would be maintained in its purity rather than having it proliferate around outside with who knows what kind of activities are going on and with the syncretism of maybe pagan cults and Jehovah's religion. And so in his mind it's kind of reversed. He sees it as a, as a bad thing where actually it was a positive thing. Come now, wager with my lord, the king of Assyria. He's the king of Assyria's emissary. And here you see just how an emissary of someone else can behave. He represents the king of Assyria here. And throughout the Old Testament, when the prophets speak, they say, thus says the Lord. And so they're the Lord's emissary. And this is a typical messenger speech of that kind. In verse 4 he says, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria. He's now the king of Assyria's mouthpiece, just as a prophet of God would be God's mouthpiece to his people. So he's speaking in the king of Assyria's name with his authority. Come now, wager with my lord, the king of Assyria, I will give you 2,000 horses if you are able to put riders on them. And he knows that they don't even have enough riders to do that because they're not trained in that and they probably don't have that many men either. How then shall you repulse even one of the least of my Lord's servants, that is, the king of Assyria's captains, depending as you do on Egypt for chariots and horsemen? You don't have any of your own, or not enough, and now you're totally dependent on Egypt. See, he's really accusing them falsely of many, many things here, and he's getting more and more enmeshed in deception and lies. That's how Satan works, and that's what's going on here. He's trying to wear down the will of the people and their faith in the Lord to protect them. Moreover, could I have marched against this land and destroyed it, which he has done, without the Lord, that is, without Jehovah? For Jehovah told me to come against this land and destroy it. So now he's assuming authority from God, the God of Israel, which is not his own God. It's authority from the God of Israel, His god was Marduk or some other Assyrian deity. And now he's assuming authority from the god of Israel to come against his own people and destroy them. So you see how arrogant he is. Verse 11. Then Eliakim, Shebna, and Yoach said to Rabshakeh, Please speak to your servants in Aramaic, which we understand. Aramaic was then the lingua franca of the ancient Near East. It was kind of like English is today. And most people spoke Aramaic, including the Judeans. Do not speak to us in Judean in the ears of the people who are on the wall. Because these leaders of the people, Eliakim, Shedn, and Yoah, were concerned that the people might hear Rabshakeh's words and they might become demoralized and not obey the king in what they needed to do in that situation. So they were afraid that the people might hear, and so they asked him to speak in Aramaic, or in English, as it were. And um, 
He wouldn't. Rabshakeh replied, Did my Lord send me to say these things to you and to your Lord, and not to the men sitting on the wall, who with you are to eat their own dung and drink their own urine? Meaning that we're going to lay siege to you until you have no more food supplies left, until you'll be eating your own dung and drinking your own urine, because that's how in bad shape you'll be. Of course, that's actually what they did. They starved people out until they were so weak, they just ran and conquered them, took over their cities. If they couldn't do it easily through military means, they would do it that way, by starving them out. And in this case, they would probably have to do that because Jerusalem was such a strong citadel. It was such a strong place, had high walls, and they had plenty of food supplies in the city. Now, that was also the case with the Roman siege of Jerusalem many years later, 40 years after Christ, when the Romans seized Jerusalem, it was also a strong city, and the tactics they used were similar. They tried to starve them out. But, However, Josephus tells us that there were robbers, there were mob elements within the city that he talks about, who went around destroying the food reserves so that the Jews could not last. They were starved out by the Romans, basically. Verse 13. Then Rabshakeh stood and called out in a loud voice in Judean, or Hebrew, Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. So he used the people's listening in on this to advantage. He yelled even louder so they could hear better. Thus says the king, Do not let Hezekiah delude you. He cannot deliver you. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, when Jehovah, by saying, The Lord will surely save us. This city shall not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. So now he's coming out with all this propaganda and trying to whittle down the people's loyalty to their king so that they will capitulate to the Assyrians and go over the head of their king. Do not listen to Hezekiah. Thus says the king of Assyria, Make peace with me by coming out to me. Then every one of you will eat from his own vine and from his own fig tree, and drink water from his own cistern, until I come back and take you to a land like your own, a land of grain and wine, a land of grain fields and vineyards. So in other words, submit to us, and our policy is to transplant peoples from one part of our empire to another. And that's what the Assyrians did. They would conquer a people, take them out of their own land, put them somewhere else in another people's land, and bring people from other parts of their empire and put them over here. And it's interesting that that's what the communists did in North Africa not long ago, before the collapse of the communist system. That was what they did. They're basically saying, we'll give you another land just as good as this one. Of course, it never is, but that was their policy. And also, that would destroy the people's patriotism, because they'd be taken off their home base. What were they fighting for? Someone else's land? You know, their home was in Jerusalem, not somewhere else not in Damascus or Mesopotamia somewhere. Verse 18, Beware lest Hezekiah mislead you by saying, The Lord will save us, or Jehovah will save us. Were any of the gods of the nations able to save their lands out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamat and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sephravayim? Did they deliver Samaria out of my hand? Who of all the gods of those countries saved his land from my hand that the Lord should save Jerusalem from my hand? He's got a good point. Because those gods did not save their countries or their peoples from the hand of the king of Assyria. He conquered them all. 
Well, they conquered them all. But of course, the difference is that they were false gods. Now we're dealing with Jehovah, who's the god of heaven and earth. In the context of the ancient Near East, these arguments are very powerful. If there were people like King Ahaz a generation earlier, and his people. Verse 21, But they remained silent, replying nothing, for the king had commanded them not to answer him. That verse stands by itself because it says so much. It says that these men are loyal to their king and to their God because the king is appointed of God and they are representatives of the people. It just underscores the whole idea of loyalty here, proper loyalty, proper protocol. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, overseer of the palace, Shebna the secretary, and Joach, the son of Asaph, the record keeper, went to Hezekiah with their clothes rent and reported to him the things Rabshakeh had said. And that's proper protocol, that's proper procedure. You don't go around telling the people or talk to each other and you go straight to the authority that sent you. You report back. And they didn't just report back, but they also went with their clothes rent, showing that they were penitents and the humble, and they were also greatly offended by the arrogance of the Assyrian general. Chapters 6 through 8 also have prose sections, and they also have biography. This is basically biography. Chapter 6 is mostly in prose, except for a few verses where the Lord is speaking. And chapter 7 is nearly all in prose, Large parts of chapter 8 are in prose, except where there's prophecy given. So these two categories of chapters, 6 through 8 and 36 through 40, are also a generic category. They're a literary category that is set off by being biographical material written in prose. Where a prophet is speaking, and he's speaking in the name of the Lord, and he's prophesying, that's generally in poetry. And Hebrew poetry consisted not of rhyming words like we have in English, but of verses written in parallelism. Parallelism constitutes poetry in the ancient Near East, both in Hebrew and in other literatures of the ancient Near East. There is rhythm and accent in poetry in the parallel lines, like Edom's stream shall turn into lava, her earth into brimstone. And that's a parallelism. It is the Lord's day of vengeance, the year of retribution on behalf of Zion. That's a parallelism. So it's easy to recognize a parallelism. Prose is just a continuous set of words. There's no meter, there's no rhythm, there's no parallelism. Even though this is biographical material, and it refers to actual historical incidents that happened in Hezekiah's day, this whole structure, this seven-part structure, lifts the whole book of Isaiah off its historical base and superimposes the book on the latter-day context so that even the biographical material then serves a purpose, but the only way it can do so is to serve a typological purpose, so that what happened historically becomes a type for the future, for the latter days specifically. As this is a paradigm for rebellion, the king rebels against Jehovah and aligns himself with the king of Assyria, the Judean king does, King Ahaz, and the people are disloyal toward their king. They want to join an alliance with Israel and Damascus against Assyria. And here we have the exact opposite. Here the people are loyal to their king, 
and the king is loyal to the Lord. And that, those two ideas are juxtaposed in this seven-part structure. The whole structure is like that, it has opposite themes, so that if you read any one part of the book of Isaiah, you have to read it in the context of its parallel counterpart, because there's stuff going on over here that has bearing on this. That becomes especially pertinent when we get into chapter 53 of uh, The Suffering Servant, which talks about this suffering individual, whom many believe to be the Messiah, Christ, and some don't. The Jews say, no, that's, that's the people, the Jewish people. And over here we have its parallel counterpart. Here it's talking of the king of Zion. Here it's talking about the king of Babylon. Here it's talking about the God of Israel. Here it's talking about the false god, the god of this world. If you're going to understand about the one, you have to understand about the other. Is antithesis. Many people don't want to buy this. I mean, they, they don't want to bother with that. They just want to read Isaiah and get it. But Isaiah is not like that. Isaiah has these underlying structures. You have to come to terms with them. But once you do, it's simple. It's a key to understanding the book that kind of unlocks the book. It shows that it basically has two dimensions. Uh, the structural dimension, the structures have messages all of their own. And you have the surface reading. They're two halves of the same coin. You can never understand the book of Isaiah unless you look at both of those dimensions. The structures are very important. <laughs>